I am the port in the storm. I am the line in the sand. I am the rescuer in the dark. I am the enforcer of the seas. I am the defender of the homeland. In the United States Coast Guard and Coast Guard Reserve, you are the first line of defense against threats to our American way of life. We are the shield of freedom. We are the United States Coast Guard. Hi there, I'm Mark Simon. Welcome to A Lasting Legacy, the story of an amazing run of success by the United States Coast Guard Academy men's basketball team. It's a story about people, about service, and about sports, and how that all comes together in the pursuit of excellence. Women and men who are going in harm's way with a combination of altruism, patriotism, and adrenaline. If we had played more games, we would have lost 120 games. From the day you get here, you will start every game. It's Swap Summer. He said to me, I didn't know they were going to yell at us. The academic rigor is really pretty extensive. 21 credits every semester. Every single shirt has to be folded a single way. Your socks have to be folded a single way. I didn't come here to lose. If you're OK with it, don't be part of the team. There's a lot of inner turmoil that I think I was going through. I feel like I owe the game my life. The disasters they became. I just wonder, like, how bad I'm going to miss this. I knew if we had another opportunity to play them, that we would probably win. Dell Sowers gives the Coast Guard the lead, 24.7 to play. Holy bleep. I was nervous. Coast Guard has done it! I want to be doing this again next year, 100%. I said, all right, guys, what do you want to call this play? Grind the, grind the, G-R-I-N-D-A-H. Now Blum off the triple for a dunk. We were going to win from the minute it tipped to the minute it was over. And I'm just like, oh no, this is going to be a bad day. Let's go win! Javon James gets the Bears the lead with a dunk. He's a roll for Al Sowers. Magnificent seven run. Over. You learn from that and then you move on to do the next important thing. And all of a sudden, the next thing you hear is, boom! And somebody in the back of the bus goes, we just hit a house. I have to figure out like, what adulting means. Our history is now. Shall we begin? I promise you, if you stay with me, you will understand all of those clips. Let's get to it. This is episode one, Beginnings. When I was little, my goal was to be the broadcaster for the Mets and the Knicks. This is me practicing my baseball announcing. I was 10. I didn't quite reach my lofty goals, but I got to do something that was just as good. Kick out Lewis in the corner, Hudson fakes the three. He goes across the lane, shoots and hits. Finger roll, Eric Hudson, 61-58, Coast Guard, four minutes to play. From 2002 to 2018, I was the play-by-play broadcaster for the United States Coast Guard Academy football and basketball teams in New London, Connecticut. The first broadcast I ever did, Coast Guard football lost to Springfield, 62-7. But we got emails, so many emails from fans saying, keep going. Since students come to the academy from all over the country, their families aren't able to make the games. So the broadcasts are a connection point from parent to child. We kept going. 
And then in 2007, the men's basketball team had one of the most incredible seasons in college basketball history. I'm not exaggerating. College basketball history. That's it! Coach Card has done it! And then the next year was even better. What a win! The biggest win in Coast Guard basketball history! I've been to the World Series, the NBA Finals, the NHL Playoffs, and Monday Night Football. But my favorite games of all are the ones I got to broadcast in those two seasons with the Coast Guard Academy. That's my story. Now it's time to tell the story of the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard Academy, and the men's basketball team that left a lasting legacy. The Coast Guard is one of the six branches of the United States military. Yes, the Coast Guard is a military branch, but it's much more than that. My name is David Helvarg. I'm author and executive director of Blue Frontier Ocean Conservation Group. One of my books is Rescue Warriors, the U.S. Coast Guard, America's Forgotten Heroes. I think what I found with the Coast Guard is young people, young women and men who are going in harm's way with a combination of kind of altruism, patriotism, and adrenaline. I've talked to a number of young members who say they just rather save people than kill them, which is why they chose that branch of the military. The other attraction for the Coast Guard for a lot of young people is, I mean, there's a lot of range in the work that Coasties get to do. And those people, they're a group worth rooting for. One of our key missions is saving lives and that we are willing to go out and but, you know, assume some risk to ourselves to be able to do that. We're on a 24-hour duty shift, so the call comes in about 2 a.m. And the call is for fishermen, which lost propulsion on the ocean, and they struck rocks and they were taken on water. The last thing I hear is their abandoned ship. And that was all we needed at that point. We were going to go head out, head after them, because in that situation, we have four lives that are out there. And so it, it warrants maximum effort on our part to safely go out there the best we can to go and save these guys. I am in charge of the command center and I equate it to like a 911 call center but for the water. It's pretty busy down here on the the international border with Mexico. So I was on one of the Coast Guard's strike team pollution fast deployable pollution response teams out of North Carolina. Helped the EPA clean up train derailments that were really serious. I was down helping clean up oil in Deepwater Horizon. They pulled me out of my finals early in my junior year, and I flew down to the Gulf. There's not really a classroom for that, right? And then I went and I did construction management, and that was right after Hurricane Sandy, and so I was part of the rebuilding process. In the White House Situation Room, as a senior duty officer, I was responsible for a team of people that, one, we help maintain a global situational awareness for the President, Vice President, and National Security Council staff. We help with the presidential and vice presidential communications. So when they need to talk to their counterparts, we'll facilitate a conversations with other heads of state. And then third, we liaise with 17 different intelligence agencies. President Biden obviously Delaware is his home state. And so anytime that he is moving in the state, we're doing security zone enforcement. So I'm here in the Capitol doing uh, airspace protection, enforcing a restricted zone around the Capitol. And our primary job is just to intercept any traffic that is unauthorized to come in to the, uh, the flight restricted zone. 
and uh, identify those personnel as either hostile or, or not. I directed a team of watchstanders that ensured the safe navigation of commercial shipping in and out of Tampa Bay. We have icebreaking capabilities that are helping to explore Antarctica. I would call it like a SWAT team on water based in San Diego. So we'd sneak up on drug runners in the middle of the night or jumping out of helicopters and we would commandeer the ship and interdict the narcotics. We were the first U.S. surface vessel to make it to the North Pole unaccompanied. So that was a little bit of history there. We make it to the North Pole. We were part of this mission called Geotraces, which was a scientific mission or collaboration among different all these different countries. Our, our role is super vast. Once Alexander Hamilton once started a, a small group of people, it's turned into an amazing organization. Yes, it's Alexander Hamilton. The Alexander Hamilton who is the founder of the Coast Guard, or what was known then as the Revenue Cutter Service. It predated the Navy by eight years and began with 10 ships. The major source of income for the government was really revenue from tariffs. And so there was a lot of piracy and a lot of people running past the customs houses and smuggling. And uh, the Revenue Cutter Service was established to regulate trade and make sure that the uh, government got some revenue from customs. 1876 marked the founding of the Revenue Cutter School of Instruction. After all, if you're going to have people doing this work, you have to train them. They began training on ships, and instruction became land-based in 1900. Ten years later, the school relocated to a revolutionary war fort in New London, Connecticut. In 1915, the Revenue Cutter Service merged with a separate group, the U.S. Life Saving Service, and officially took the name the United States Coast Guard. The Coast Guard would go through different iterations. The current version is part of the Department of Homeland Security. In 1932, the city of New London donated the land that was used to construct what we know now as the Academy's current home. Forty acres expanded to 103 along the Thames River. Words to describe it nearly 90 years later? Beautiful. Campus is awesome. And it's even getting better. The campus is amazing. It's right on the water, on the Thames River. The buildings are immaculate. It's a postcard, and it, that's not Photoshop. It's very pretty. And then you get down by the water, it's actually very peaceful. It's a gorgeous campus, but it, it just it like it just screams authoritative. And I think that like just embedded in me just like this intimidating feeling. To become a Coast Guard officer, you can either go through a boot camp program, officer training, or go to the academy at which you'll receive a college degree. We're here to focus on the latter. The Coast Guard Academy, the one military branch where you don't receive a congressional appointment, is tough to get into. You need high SATs and excellent grades. It's also tough to stay in. Attrition takes out about one-third of the student body from fourth-class year to first-class year. And one of the first things you're asked to remember as a student is this. The mission of the United States Coast Guard Academy is to graduate young men and women with sound bodies, stout hearts, and alert minds. With a liking for the sea and its lore. And with that high sense of honor, loyalty, and obedience. Which goes with trained initiative and leadership. Well-grounded in seamanship, the sciences, and the amenities. And strong in the resolve to be worthy of the traditions of commissioned officers. In the United States Coast Guard. In the service of their country and humanity. Varsity athletics have long been an important part of the academy. From a military perspective, 
athletics provide an important training ground. Every cadet either plays a varsity sport, a club sport, or intramurals. This is former Academy Superintendent J. Scott Burhoe. Allowed them an outlet to feel like uh, normal college students and to go out and compete. I think it allowed coaches to teach them leadership lessons in, in different ways. I would tell you that the success of former athletes at the Coast Guard Academy show just uh, how important it is to have strong athletic programs because uh, they learn the competitive nature of the world and, and they develop grit and resilience to, to work through things. For students, athletics are an escape from the day-to-day stresses of academy life. We'll get into that later in the podcast. The school currently has 25 varsity teams. As you can imagine, the academy's swimming teams are top-notch. Their sailing, pistol, and rifle teams are, too. And at various points, softball, women's volleyball, wrestling, and football are among those that shined. But the team we're here to tell the story of is the men's basketball team, whose games I broadcast for more than 15 years. The men's basketball program began in 1923. Records are sketchy pre-1955. What we do know about that time is that the basketball program, the athletic program, and the academy had issues that are still pertinent today. On January 27, 1934, the Connecticut State basketball team came to the academy to play Coast Guard. Connecticut State had a black player on the team named Honey Fitch. The academy was not yet integrated. It wouldn't be for three more decades. Many of the students were from the segregated South and would not compete against black athletes. In a boxing match earlier that day, the Coast Guard wouldn't fight against a black boxer from the University of New Hampshire. And Honey Fitch sat on the bench and did not play basketball against Coast Guard. It was a bad day in the Academy's athletic history. I learned of this story through an article in the Hartford Current in February of 2021. One thing the Academy did in response was change the name of its basketball gym to remove the name of that team's coach, John Merriman. Moving ahead a couple of decades, the 1957-58 year began a run of 17 consecutive losing seasons. The program would soon have new leadership. It's here that we need to mention one of the most important people in Coast Guard athletic history, the one who hired the new coach. Athletic Director Otto Graham. Otto Graham is one of the all-time great quarterbacks in NFL history, but Otto was not long for the pro game. He retired in 1955 after having won seven championships in ten seasons. Otto signed on with the Academy thanks to a connection between Commanding Officer Frank Leamy and their mutual friend, future Yankees owner George Steinbrenner. Otto and Admiral Leamy pledged that Coast Guard would not go big time, and it didn't. Otto Graham had two stints at the academy. He established a reputation of creating a good atmosphere for student-athletes to thrive in. The highlight of the first stint was a trip to the Tangerine Bowl with an undefeated football team in 1963. That team became the standard by which all others at the academy were measured. In Otto's biography, it notes that he sometimes sided with athletes over administration, and he understood the greater mission at hand. This is another Academy Athletic Director, Ray Sieplick. 
he said, look, we want very badly to win here at the academy. Don't get me wrong. But our job is to prepare cadets to be officers in the Coast Guard. In that second turn as athletic director, Otto hired a new basketball coach, 32-year-old Pete Broca. And it took a little while, but the program's fortunes began to turn. Coast Guard ended its long run of losing seasons in 1974-75. In 77-78, the Bears won their first 13 games on the way to going 19-4. Fans began to climb on board the bandwagon. They filled the gym. And they took their fanhood to a high level. This is former Coast Guard men's basketball player Tim Leahy. Probably my favorite part of the whole experience was that for two years we had a full gym and we didn't lose at home. And it was Sam Shriver. Shriver one day was just talking and we were talking about it. And he goes in his funny way, you know, this is this is like bear mania. This is Rick Gaines, class of 78. The development of bear mania pretty much started around 76. And it got all of a sudden every year a little more bear mania. It's a complete 180 manner of carrying yourself from your daily manner of carrying yourself as a cadet. So you tend to do crazy things, say crazy things, make crazy faces, jump up and down. So bear mania was our no boundary sort of behavior. What made the bear mania experience unique was that it involved a real live bear, the school mascot, Obji. <laughs> Always fantastic to see OG the bear running across uh, the gym with about five cadets being dragged behind him. <laughs> Norwich University, one year they tried to come and steal the bear. <laughs> and the story, I'll give you the official version of the story, was they stole OG the bear. And about three miles down the road, the bear started eating the inside of the van out. <laughs> So they returned the bear. The 1978-79 Bears roared like none other in school history. Broca had modest goals, a 500 record. The players, particularly six seniors, had loftier ones. You know, we went 19-4 and four last year. Our goal this year is to be better than that. Our goal this year is to go to the tournament. Point guard Alex Simanka quarterbacked the offense. Big men Bob Mobley, Dave McLeish, and Rich Hall were the scorers. Tim Leahy was the shooter, and Dave Macera was the sixth man. Our offense was called the wheel. Very, very patterned, very, very structured. The Bears made the NCAA tournament for the first time, entering it with a 20-2 record. Their opponent was a familiar rival, Clark, whom they had beaten earlier in the season. The game went two overtimes and the Bears came up just a little bit short. Back then, the NCAA played a consolation game for teams that lost in each round, and the Bears bounced back with a win to end on a high note. It was a big deal to me, and I I think it was a big deal to our team. We played with everything we had. So what was the legacy of that team? This is men's basketball coach Pete Broca. They bonded together. They had success. Uh, They bought into a system, and they put the team ahead of themselves and their individual accomplishments. The dream ended for the 1979 Coast Guard men's basketball team with that one-on-one split in the NCAA tournament. 
But 3,000 miles away, the dream was just beginning for a young, aspiring basketball coach who would eventually find his way to the academy. Pete Berry was in his first season as an assistant at his alma mater, the University of San Francisco, in the city in which he grew up. Pete played basketball, but baseball was the sport that took him places. Daly City was just a great place to grow up. Talk about the field of dreams. It was the asphalt of dreams for me and all the legends that, that I watched on that playground. And of course, the local playground was our Yankee Stadium and Boston Garden. I had my books. I went to class. I tried to have a date every now and again. And I was around the gym and or somewhere I was hitting a baseball. I had an idea, not a goal, but an idea that someday I would enjoy being a coach. Pete did become a teacher and the head baseball and basketball coach at St. Patrick's High School. Barry's predecessor there was Neil McCarthy, and three years later it was McCarthy plucking Barry to become a full-time Division I assistant at Weber State, only to dismiss him after three seasons while Pete was studying for his master's degree. Pete went back to the University of San Francisco, where his former basketball coach, Dan Bellamini, was there to help him out. When he found out that I came in to visit him and say hello, and he, he offered me a job as a second assistant. In 1979, USF went to the second round of the NCAA tournament. After the season, it came out that Bellamini and another assistant violated NCAA rules in the recruitment of North Carolina star Sam Perkins. Bellamini and that assistant were fired. Pete Berry was hired to replace him. He was the head coach at age 32 at a very good Division I program. I should not have even had the opportunity. Maybe St. Jude was involved. I don't know. Somebody up above said, hey, let's take a shot with this kid. And it's, it was a miracle. It was a crazy uh, serendipitous situation. Yep. And you got to show up. You, you can't not show up. And I, I felt, okay, I'm here. I'm going to do the best I can. Barry's best was very good. In his first two seasons, USF went 49-13, and 13, went to the NCAAs twice, and was ranked as high as number six in the country. There is a version of this story in which Pete Berry is the next Dean Smith, where San Francisco stays a national basketball powerhouse for the next 20 years and contends for national championships, and Pete Berry ends up in the Hall of Fame. But that's not what happened. The star player at San Francisco was an All-American guard, Quinton Daly. But Daly had problems off the court. In February 1982, he was arrested on a sexual assault charge. He pled guilty to attempted assault, which allowed him to receive probation and join the Chicago Bulls, who had selected him in the NBA draft. But when Daly went down for attempted assault, he took the whole San Francisco program with him. Daly said that he was paid $1,000 a month during the summer of his junior year for a no-show job, essentially a payment from a booster, and that Barry had paid a rental car bill for him. To this day, Barry denied knowing about the former and denies the latter happened. The school even acknowledged that it had no knowledge of any wrongdoing by him. However, there had previously been issues with the basketball program under Barry's predecessor. Issues that Pete didn't have anything to do with. But with little patience, the San Francisco school president did something rash. He disbanded the entire basketball program. That left Pete Berry out of a job. 
and given what had just happened, getting another college job anytime soon seemed unlikely. I went back to teaching high school and coaching baseball in the local local high school, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Going back to high school, it's still a dream. I wanted to be a teacher coach, which I was doing. In the summer of 1982, after the disbanding of the program, Pete got asked to speak about his experience at a group of about 20 people at a country club. The person who most wanted to hear him speak was a football coach at the University of Southern Oregon, Chuck Mills. Chuck wanted to find out about what what a, you go through as a coach and when you get fired, because he'd been fired a couple of times. Flash forward a few years. Pete's still teaching and coaching local high school basketball. He gets a phone call. It's Southern Oregon Athletic Director Chuck Mills. Chuck needed a basketball coach. He hired Pete. Barry enjoyed modest success in his six seasons at Southern Oregon, winning 100 games and making the playoffs five times. Meanwhile, he and his wife's two children, Casey and Melissa, were born there. Life was good. In 1989, Chuck Mills left Southern Oregon for a job on the East Coast. A year after he got there, he called Pete Barry again. Chuck Mills phoned up and said, Pete, we, we got a job here at Coast Guard. Would you be interested in applying? And I said, absolutely. And so that's how that got started and finished. Pete Barry was applying to coach a basketball program that had some good teams, but had not recaptured the magic that got them to the NCAA tournament in 1979. After Pete Broca's contract was not renewed in 1984, he was replaced by his assistant, Hallie Gregory, who coached the team for five seasons before leaving to become the athletic director at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Needing someone to fill the role in the short term, Coast Guard coaxed a prominent local coach, Bill Dietrich, out of retirement. Dietrich was the interim coach for a year, but was not up for the permanent job. A hundred other people were, and Chuck Mills wanted Pete. I was really impressed with the whole organizational program of both academics, military, and athletics. It's very important. And I realized what a special place this was. As Pete got acclimated to Coast Guard, he had to fill out a staff. And Chuck Mills had some input there, too. Chuck said, Pete, the only request I have, he said, you have to hire this guy, Bono. He's uh, working down at uh, Huey's. Bob Bono is a New London, Connecticut lifer. I grew up about six blocks from the Coast Guard Academy. My father was in the Navy, and actually both my parents are buried in Arlington. My mother was in the Navy as well. That's where they met. I used to go to the Academy quite often, and I used to go to a number of basketball and football games. When we were kids, there was a guard, and he was number 10. His name was Dave Dubois. And we used to go over there as kids and watch the game. The next day in the playground, we were imitating Dave Dubois because he was like, he'd score like 20 points a game. Bob Bono's path to coaching had a familial connection. I grew up in an athletic family. My mother was a world-class speed skater. And my father was from Brooklyn, New York, and he always followed Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Giants, football Giants, and the Rangers and Knicks and all that. He was a fanatic. I always had in the back of my mind that I was going to be a coach. When I was 15 years old, my father would coach our Babe Ruth baseball team. I broke my collarbone that summer, and I was only able to play one game. I stayed in the dugout, coached first base or whatever, and I kind of liked it. I wasn't that good a baseball player. 
So I stayed coaching baseball throughout uh, high school and when I was in college. My younger brother was five years younger than me. He was playing uh, high school football. And one of the coaches came up to me. He goes, hey, what are you doing? I said, oh, not, not much. He goes, well, you want to coach? I said, oh, I really haven't thought about coaching basketball. And he says, freshman job's open. Why don't you go for it? I said, all right, have the varsity coach call me. So he called me. I went up and talked to him. I coached freshman for two years, St. Bernard's. Then I became the assistant varsity coach after that for the next eight years. And then I went to the Coast Guard Academy. Bono connected with the academy by way of the school's track coach, Al Darling, who was a friend of Bob's father. And through now assistant coach, Tim Leahy, remember him from the 79 team, Bono got a job as an assistant under Hallie Gregory. That was in September 1987. But at first... I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I came from a high school program that was very good. We won back-to-back state titles in 81 and 82. We lost in a state final in 85. They played their butts off first. And when I got to the academy, I was like, oh, these guys, you know, they're making mistakes, not playing hard. And I said to Hallie Gregory, after about two weeks of practice, I said, can I have five minutes talking to the team? He went, yeah. So I said, I left a, a high school program to come here. You guys don't want to play basketball. And I kind of ripped them up a little bit. Well, you know what? It got better. Bono found that the team responded well to him in that role. I don't know if I was right or wrong, but the kids liked me, and we won the, we won the conference that year. Bono stuck around after Gregory left for Maryland Eastern Shore. He learned the other side of coaching in Bill Dietrich's one season with the team. Great guy. I learned so much offense from him. He's a wonderful guy. His style of coaching and some of the things he would tell me, I, I still use to this day. Making the players feel good about themselves and giving them confidence and everything. And he would not aggravate them, shut them down to where they would go into a shell and not want to play. Bono had done well enough by Chuck Mills that Mills endorsed his being the top assistant for Coach Barry. But Mills wanted the two of them to meet at the restaurant where Bono tended bar. We pulled out napkin here or the salt and pepper shakers and started talking about basketball. And we hit it off pretty good. Ketchup bottles, mud mustard deals, vodka cranberry glasses we move around somewhere, X's and Owen. Philosophically, we both enjoyed the idea of playing defense in basketball. Very important. Plus, he was a tremendous recruiter. I, I saw the files on the kids he had been brought bringing in the last couple of years since when he was an assistant here. Bob Bono was Pete Berry's top assistant for the entirety of Berry's time at Coast Guard. New London Day columnist Mike DeMora watched the relationship from its early days until now. Good marriages last because opposites attract, and you can't get more opposite than they are. Bob is a, a, a local guy, and he's very rigid about the way things should get done. You win by showing up every day, and you don't make excuses for, for anything. And you're tough, and you're tougher than the other guy. And Pete's like, if Pete is a San Francisco liberal, laid back, he would say things like TQM, total quality management. I mean, Bob never heard of, never heard of that. Nobody ever ever heard, heard of that. I mean, who says that? Barry and Bono's Bears went sixteen and nine in his first season. They won the Constitution Athletic Conference title after going two and three in that league. They beat WPI in the championship game. Losing record. 
Championship Season, WPI. File that away for later. The Bears of the 1990s had some good runs, but could never crack a bid to the NCAA tournament. The 1994 and 95 teams with Mark Harris, Jed Boba, and Joe Morgan were the most memorable. Fast forward to the fall of 2003. Coast Guard was coming off a season in which it graduated a large senior class. There were some promising freshmen in the mix, but it never gelled the right way. This would be a low point in the Barry Bono run. The Bears went 3-20. and 20. Hurtful. <laughs> Miserable. Something you just don't want to wish on any coach in America, any level. Guard H.B. Baker remembers the team having some talent, but that the players didn't necessarily fit the coaching staff's slow-down, disciplined style. The losing resulted in a lot of frustration. It was awful. It was really brutal. Because we worked so hard. You just have so much school going on. You have so much, so much academic, so much military stuff. You're really getting pushed from every front. You're not getting a lot of sleep. Everybody's worried about failing classes and getting bad grades. And, and basketball is kind of like your only outlet. And so when you're doing that poorly, it's your only outlet. I think everyone had a hard time with it because it, was, it had to be frustrating from a coaching perspective. And it was frustrating from a player perspective. I remember a conversation I had with Coach Barry in the fall of 2004. He said six words that still ring true today. I'm never going through that again. On the next episode of A Lasting Legacy, we focus on the greatest freshman class in Coast Guard basketball history. A Lasting Legacy is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Mark Simon. Thanks to David Helvark for his assistance on Episode 1. Full credits for each episode will be provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>